This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court revived a case over free speech on campus, even though the Georgia College already gave into the students' demands over the expression of their Christian views, and the students had already graduated. The court said the students' claim for nominal money damages was enough to keep the suit alive, a point brought out by Justice Stephen Breyer during the oral arguments. And the same with speech. He wanted to speak there. He was constitutional, unconstitutionally forbidden to do it. Well, he was about to give his speech. What's the damage? Now, don't nominal damages have a place right there where there is damage? But it's just impossible to measure. It was an eight-to-one opinion, the first time that the Chief Justice has written a solo dissent since joining the court 16 years ago. His dissent followed his questioning. Say, you go into court and say your rights have been violated. The judge asks, have you been damaged by that? Do you have any compensable injury? You say no. Uh, And he asks, is is that violation going to have any effect on you in the future? And you say no. It's not going to be repeated. And he says, well, then you don't have standing. Uh, I've got to throw the case out. And you say, oh, well, throw, me, throw in a buck. Uh, and then the judge is supposed to say, yeah, well, everything's fine now. Doesn't that, doesn't that make a mockery of our Article Three requirements? Joining me is Audrey Anderson, who heads the higher education practice at Bass, Barry, and Sims. What was the issue before the justices here? The issue before the justices was whether a plaintiff who is claiming nominal damages, that is, almost symbolic damages, can still continue with his case, or whether the court has to dismiss that claim as moot. Here, the student plaintiff had already graduated from the college whose policies he was challenging, and in fact, the college had changed those policies. So the question was whether his claim for nominal damages for the violation of his First Amendment rights by the college was enough for the court to decide his claim or whether the court needed to dismiss it because the college could no longer apply any of its policies to this student. Did it surprise you that it was an eight-to-one decision? Not at all, because a number of the lower circuit courts of appeals had already decided that a claim for nominal damages was enough to save a lawsuit from a finding of mootness. The circuit court whose decision they were looking at here, the 11th Circuit, was somewhat of an outlier in its rule. So the holding here, I don't think, was really a surprise at all. The 8 to 1 may be a little bit of a surprise. Justice Thomas wrote the majority opinion. Tell us what the court's reasoning was based on. Well, Justice Thomas and Chief Justice Roberts and his dissent as well, they both looked to the law of England and the United States at the time that the Constitution was adopted to try to figure out whether those early legal sources allowed claims of nominal damages and whether those claims were really to remedy a past injury or were they somehow to prevent parties from violating the law in the future. And they reached different conclusions on that. Justice 
Thomas found that in the common law of England and the early United States that uh, claims for nominal damages really were to compensate for past wrongs that were really hard to quantify, like a violation of voting rights or a violation of your First Amendment rights. It's very hard to put a dollar amount on that. Chief Justice Roberts reached a different conclusion, um, especially based on the English law, where he points out that in England, the courts could give what are called advisory opinions to the king. And he sees a claim for nominal damages as being more like an advisory opinion. And under our Constitution, courts are only supposed to decide actual cases or controversies. And that's why we have this rule of there has to be something actually still at stake between the parties for the court to be able to have jurisdiction and rule. So the average person looking at this might say, well, what's the case or controversy here? The college gave in to the student's demands and the student has graduated. So what is the case or controversy? I think that to the average person, the case or controversy is to say, well, they did apply this policy to him. This student, in fact, was prevented from passing out literature and speaking to his fellow students about his faith. And so it is to say to the student, if he ends up winning, which it appears he will, yes, your rights were violated, and here is something, an award of nominal damages, to show that you were right. Now, in real effect, what this gets is it will allow him to get an award of attorney's fees. So his attorneys will get paid by the college. That's the real world effect that I don't expect the average person to know off the top of their heads. But for the parties to the lawsuit, most civil rights lawsuits, the plaintiff is entitled to get his legal fees from the defendant if the plaintiff is victorious in the lawsuit. This is the first solo dissent that Chief Justice Roberts has written in his nearly 16 years on the bench. And it was a bit biting. He said, the court sees no problem with turning judges into advice columnists. Yeah, I I thought that that was interesting. Of course, always when you write a dissent, you have a lot more freedom to be free in your writing and the words you use and when you're trying to get others to join on with you. So, you know, the wording that he used didn't really surprise me that much. I think the bigger surprise is that he chose this case as one that was important enough to him to write the solo dissent at all. That, to me, I think, was the bigger surprise. But, you know, on the other hand, Chief Justice Roberts tends not to be horribly friendly to plaintiffs in civil rights suits. And so from that perspective, it doesn't really surprise me that much. Is it also that he has more of a concern about the courts being flooded, perhaps, with claims than other justices may? That could be. It could be. I, you know, I actually, I think that that's a little bit overwrought because there are other elements to the doctrine of standing, what you have to be able to plead in order to get into court. And uh, as I said, a number of the circuit courts of appeals already were operating under a rule that a claim for nominal damages would save your case from mootness, even if your client, the plaintiff, was no longer under the rules of your institution. 
So I'm sure that, that Chief Justice Roberts is concerned about that, and he may have more reason as an institutionalist to be concerned about that than some other justices. But I think he's a little overwrought in his concern about that. Let me ask you about what might be a loophole. He said basically that the defendant can decide to fork over a buck and get rid of the case. Well, I think that's really interesting. So it very well could. So the defendant, though, would have to be willing to take a judgment against it. So you would have to, as a defendant, be willing to say, yes, judge, you don't need to find whether what we did was constitutional or not, but you can enter judgment against us for $1. And that would cut off the issue I was mentioning before of attorney's fees. The plaintiff would no longer be able to get attorney's fees from you if all they won from you was $1. There's a rule in the federal rule of civil procedure that allows a defendant to offer a judgment to the plaintiff. And if the plaintiff, after that point, wins no more than that from you, the plaintiff cannot get attorney's fees from you for any litigation past that point. So if when you got the complaint, you said, you know what, you're right, our policy is unconstitutional, we're not going to use it anymore, so we'll change our policy, we'll give you a dollar, and enter judgment against us. That might move the case. So did any did Justice Thomas address that in his opinion? No, Justice Thomas did not address that in his opinion, and I think he did not for a good reason. It's not a question that is raised by this case. Now, I'm sure you noticed, June, that um, Justice Kavanaugh wrote a separate concurring opinion to address just that point, to say that he, though he joined Justice Thomas's opinion, he also agreed with the part of Chief, Chief Justice Roberts' dissent that a defendant could moot out a case by um, offering judgment of nominal damages to a plaintiff without the court um, ruling on the legality of the practice being challenged. So I think that will be the next point of um, litigation, perhaps. Though from a practical matter, for a practical perspective for most defendants, I don't know that it horribly matters. It only matters in terms of whether you need to pay it's a good way to be able to avoid paying legal fees to the plaintiff, and it prevents them from saying, we won and we found this policy unconstitutional. Could that work in this case still? Could the college come back and say, when they renew the case, okay, we're paying the dollar or whatever it was? Well, yes, but at this point, um, Mr. Uwe Boonham's lawyers have already chalked up fees um, at the district court, at the Court of Appeals, and now at the Supreme uh-huh. Court. So they already would get all those fees. Justice Thomas said that it's a flawed premise that nominal damages are purely symbolic. But aren't they symbolic? Yeah, I call them symbolic, too. And as soon as I did, I thought, oh, yeah, Justice Thomas wouldn't like that. You know, I think that, in, and this was interesting because there was a lot of um, conversation uh, during the oral argument about, what is the nature of nominal damages? Are they symbolic or are they really trying to redress an injury that you just can't put a dollar amount on? And then I think we're getting into semantics, aren't we? So is it symbolic when you're getting a remedy for something that you can't put a dollar amount on? Some might say that that's the whole definition of symbolic. 
So, you know, I, I think at, at some level it gets to be a matter of semantics. The fact that it's eight to one, does any of that have to do with the underlying case trying to broaden the path to sue the government for violations of speech related to religion? Some may call me a cynic, but I have very much wondered, not even just religion, but that um, Mr. Uze Bunam was trying to spread the Christian faith. I have wondered a lot whether he would have gotten that eight to one decision if he'd been trying to share Islam with his fellow students. I don't know. I like to think he would have, but I frankly don't know. What brought a lot of attention to the case in the media was that Taylor Swift was mentioned during the oral arguments about her case. Did any of the justices mention Taylor Swift in their opinions, though? I did not notice them mentioning that. And I actually thought that that was a bit of a red herring that um, I think it was Justice Kagan who mentioned Taylor Swift because you know, Taylor Swift may have called the amount of damages she was looking for in her sexual harassment case nominal. But I think that it is really well established in the law that it is it is real injury that a plaintiff suffers in terms of pain and suffering and sometimes economic damages from sexual harassment. And it worried me a little bit, actually, that those damages were referred to. And I don't doubt that Taylor Swift called them nominal, but it worried me a little bit. Just that she chose to only ask for a dollar because she didn't need any more money and she didn't want anybody to think that she was in the case for money. Like I said, for this case, a little bit of a red herring. Very different. That's Audrey Anderson of Bass, Barry, and Sims. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.